Welcome to episode 113 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, uh, and newly uh, available on Google Play, I should add, uh, thanks to Kara Kane, who uh, went through the painful process of getting Google Play to notice us. Uh, uh, so you just have to search for Steptoe under podcasts, and they'll uh, um, uh, provide you links. Um, uh, of course, if you're already listening, you already know how to find us. Um, we are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and uh, our uh, interview portion of the uh, podcast uh, today uh, might run a little long, but it's going to be, um, I think, a particularly entertaining one uh, because we're going to have several panelists um, a, in a uh, presentation to the Georgetown 6th uh, Annual International Conference on Cyber Engagement. Uh, um, and uh, this is a panel of cryptographers talking about encryption policy. Uh, uh, so we will have, or at least security guys, we will have uh, uh, Dan Kaminsky, the chief scientist at White Ops, uh, who's been on the program before. Uh, Kieran Raj, uh, who's senior counsel to the deputy attorney general uh, uh, doing uh, cybersecurity matters. Uh, uh, and Dr. Zulfikar Ramzan, who's the CTO of RSA Security. Uh, uh, there's at least one other person who may join us, uh, but that's still undetermined at this point. Uh, so when we finish up the news roundup, we will give you uh, a, about an hour of discussion of uh, uh, Burr-Feinstein, crypto policy, backdoors, and the like. Uh, but for now, uh, for the news roundup, uh, we have Alan Cohn, uh, formerly head of strategy for DHS, now of counsel to Steptoe, Maury Shank, formerly managing partner in our London office, and uh, now an advisor on cybersecurity issues. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, now back again at Steptoe to practice law, uh, more times than any other lawyer. So let's uh, get started. Uh, um, and uh, a little bit of news out of the UK, a couple of things. Uh, uh, there, uh, I was just over there, and uh, the civil liberties groups are, are claiming that this uh, uh, investigatory uh, powers act will have very broad uh, implications. I'm not quite sure that uh, uh, they will have as many implications as the left over there is saying, but they apparently it did include a requirement uh, for tech companies to disclose new products before they launch, or at least that's what's being said. Maury, do you agree with that? Uh, yes, Stuart. I, I think that is what the draft says. You know, There hasn't been that much new in this legislation. I'm inclined to agree with you rather than the critics, aside from Internet connection records. But what they've done is there's an existing requirement to require – telcos when the home office asked them to build interception capabilities and they've twisted that with their interception code of practice a proposed one to say that if you've built us technical capabilities we get to look at your new products and decide you know what might be required before you can introduce them interesting and that's very significant that that is significant uh, because of course the internet is famously uh, permissionless uh, uh, in its innovation and uh, uh, not surprisingly all of the principles that people announced for the internet in the 90s are slowly falling uh, 
by the wayside, and and this is another, um, including the idea that you you know you shouldn't regulate uh, uh, intermediaries. Uh, um, so yeah, I, I, and I assume this is designed so that they can exercise some sort of regulatory uh, uh, body English. Yes, I mean the UK authorities, the Home Office is usually pretty practical about negotiating these things. So you know the the expectation isn't that they would be heavy-handed, but I suspect that this language will not survive. It would be extremely controversial, and uh, it's directly contrary to the overall message that the legislation doesn't introduce new authorities. So I expect this to fall. So when I was uh, speaking to uh, uh, to the Aspen uh, Security Forum uh, when I was in London over the weekend, uh, uh, they paired me with a woman uh, from Civil Liberties Group uh, who uh, claimed that the Investigatory, Investigatory Powers Act would actually uh, provide um, for government access to encryption. Uh, and I, that just did not sound right, and I didn't quite know where this idea had come from or whether it was plausible or whether it was just uh, part of the, uh, the primal scream attack on the, on the act. It's not in there, in my view. I mean, uh, what the Act says is that a technical capability uh, can include decryption of things that you, that the carrier itself has encrypted. Mm-hmm. But that's the case. That's the case under current law, and is generally the case in many countries in the world, and is not particularly controversial. There has been the Civil Liberties Group have said the Act is vague enough to permit, um, you know, requirements to disclose encryption keys, but that's not in there, and I, it would require judicial authority, and I think that it's, that's also pretty equivalent to existing law. So, so the, I just don't think that's correct. Yeah, I, I, good. I, I, that's kind of what I thought, uh, um, that it was probably um, uh, exaggeration. It makes sense that it is. Uh, uh, the other exaggeration that, that made the press uh, in the last week was uh, – um, a, a heavy breathing claim that uh, because of documents disclosed as a result of litigation, we, we now know that GCHQ is collecting bulk personal data. Um, I don't know if you looked at this, Maury, but when I actually got the documents, what they consisted of, and which somehow didn't quite make the headlines, uh, was elaborate uh, sets of rules putting limits on uh, the kind of access and uh, treatment of bulk personal data, um, and of course there's bulk personal data in any collection of uh, uh, signals intelligence. Uh, so uh, what in a fair-minded uh, uh, observer's uh, view would be an indication of the care to protect personal data that is being adopted, uh, um, instead we're, we're treated to the uh, claim that uh, uh, this is the end of the world uh, and uh, bulk personal data is shockingly everywhere. Yeah, I mean, the UK government has a lot of information on its citizens. And the question is, you know, what else is being collected? Um, So I agree with you. It does seem like a storm without knowing uh, that there's no point to get any abuses. On yeah. the other hand, one could say this is sort of like what happened in the U.S. in the J. Edgar Hoover era. There was worries about, you know, holding information on uh, people and misusing it. Um, it's not a non-issue, but I don't think that there's any evidence of massive collection out there. 
Well, the theme of the theme of the uh, podcast seems to be uh, Stuart goes to London and brings back little stories uh, uh, because uh, um, while I was there, the, the the opening speech was by Jim Comey, uh, and uh, uh, Comey, of course, uh, is is a charming interlocutor, right? Uh, and um, he's been saying pretty much the same thing about encryption for a year, uh, but he got asked how much it cost. Uh, and he had this cute way of expressing it. He said, well, um, it cost the FBI more than the FBI is going to pay me for the remaining seven years of my term. So you, ha- you kind of had to do the math to figure out uh, that they uh, uh, had spent uh, um, over $1.3 million to, to get access to the uh, San Bernardino uh, iPhone. Uh, that's Kind of, you sort of say, gee, that's a lot of money. But I, it doesn't surprise me at all that the 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 FBI would do that. They they rebuilt the an entire TWA plane that they pulled out of the water just uh, because they thought it might have been blown up by terrorists, and then decided it hadn't been. So uh, this is uh, this is a very modest expenditure compared to that. Yes, exactly. And because, of course, if you compare it to bug bounty programs, they don't have any frequent flyer miles to give out. That's <laughs> what they were left with. Exactly. So I, I, I think that was kind of uh, mildly interesting. We're down to the mildly interesting aspects of all these uh, uh, phone uh, things. Uh, um, uh, the leaks now suggest there's kind of dueling leaks on whether the um, iPhone produced anything useful. Um, uh, the press is saying no, and then the FBI sources are saying, well, you know, it, it, it has helped us. It has eliminated some uh, 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 information that we otherwise wouldn't have known, you know. Well, it seems to me like the reports are saying the same thing, which yes, is I that the one that. side is saying there was nothing useful on the phone, and the other side is saying, see, the dog didn't bark. Yeah, you know, so, that's exactly uh, right. It was very well phrased that we can now rule out yeah. that the phone was used for <laughs> anything uh, nefarious. So my favorite um, uh, uh, observation is that uh, Apple, the guardian of security and privacy, determined to stand up for its uh, users, um, was presented by a group of hackers who said, uh, gee, we found big, big um, uh, serious security flaws in QuickTime that would allow anybody who's running QuickTime on Windows to be pwned. Uh, we assume you'll want to impose to to correct those flaws and uh, make sure that no one, none of your users are subject to this kind of attack. And Apple apparently said to them. Oh no, we're sick of a quick time on on Windows. We're not going to update it for anything, including protecting people who use it. Uh, we didn't actually tell anybody that we weren't updating it. Uh, so yeah, I guess they, they should be they they could be screwed, but uh, you know that's not our problem because uh, you know it's just user security uh, about which we care only uh, if it will get us favorable uh, publicity. Well, it's Windows users. Ah, that's so. Those idiots should have been using Macintoshes, well, and I mean, then they wouldn't have a problem. The, uh, <laughs> the, the quick time for, uh, for the Mac OS was, um, was updated uh, in stride. Um, yeah. 
And so, and, and honestly, how many Windows uh, users are using QuickTime? No, as their I think media I think player? QuickTime came with iTunes for a while, and if you wanted to use iTunes, which you know even Windows users are burdened with because you you couldn't you couldn't buy music without first getting iTunes, and then I think the QuickTime played it. Uh, uh, but no, I think a lot of people have this, you know, it's an orphan. Uh, no one uses it uh, much, but it would be easy. In fact, I haven't actually gone back to check to see whether my home machine might actually have this. Uh, I better check before this hits the uh, 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 the servers, or, or I'll be hacked uh, immediately, uh, uh, if by no one else, by Apple trying to prove that, uh, you know, I'm an evil man. Well, maybe they'll be commenting on Tim Cook's uh, 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 views. Maybe they'll just send you a nice new Mac laptop, laptop or, a, or a nice desktop unit with a big screen. I, I'm sure, and copying data uh, automatically back to Cupertino. Uh, okay. Uh, and uh, uh, so we ought to do some law. Uh, uh, the federal judge, um, you know, the, the FBI took over a Tor server uh, that was distributing child porn and ran it for a couple of weeks and picked up a lot of you know evil people who were uh, feeding their uh, addiction uh, at, on the server uh, and they've been prosecuting them and it's been controversial in part because the FBI was actually serving child porn for a couple of weeks uh, I and a federal judge has now said that the uh, Activities of the FBI were unlawful, but not for that reason, if I understand it. Uh, uh, instead, what uh, he said was you didn't have a warrant from the district in which the person was located. Uh, uh, and, and so he has essentially uh, brought to the fore uh, in a very dramatic way something that, that has been fought over under the covers for like a year, which is, are we going to revise Rule 41 to say one magistrate can issue a, uh, a warrant that covers more than his jurisdiction? And this is this is a case where it's obvious he should have been able to do it, and yet that's not what uh, the, uh, the Justice Department did. Right, and and it seems definitely a plug for the magistrate judges' union, who now they're they're equal billing with Apple and uh, and encryption on a right. Rule Forty One uh, revision. But it was interesting. So the so this case involved a couple of different warrants. Uh, the first one, a Title Three warrant, and then the second one. Um, a, uh, a warrant for the network intrusion uh, mm-hmm. investigative technique, um, both of which were issued. The first was issued by a district court judge out of the Eastern District of Virginia. And then the second, the NIT warrant, was issued by a magistrate judge in the Eastern District of Virginia. And, of course, the the, um, the information that was gleaned from the tool by running the the server led to computers in a host of different districts. Right. Um, Which one, probably couldn't have been predicted in advance. No. And in fact, the, the, the application for the warrant clearly says that, that, you know, this is going to result in, in, uh, in discovery of information about places that we, uh, we just don't know about. And that's, that's been done in warrants before. Um, and so the warrant was signed off on for that reason. The magistrate, uh, the ju- district judge in, um, Massachusetts, where the where this particular defendant brought uh, the this uh, motion uh, to suppress the evidence, said, uh, you know, well, no, clearly, the information that was discovered through that warrant 
uh, was located here in the District of Massachusetts and not in the Eastern District of Virginia. Um, and that the FBI's arguments that, no, actually it was the computer searching information in the Eastern District was specious, that the FBI agent with 19 years of experience, you know, couldn't have patently believed, especially with the Rule 41 mm-hmm. dispute going on, that this would have been a legitimate warrant. Um, and so by dint of the, magistrate, the Federal Magistrates Act and Rule 41, the warrant was void on its face, and therefore the evidence should be suppressed. What was interesting was, again, you have to go to the back of the decision to find this, right. which was, uh, so what's the FBI supposed to do? Yeah. Um, and, and, and was it go to a district court, right? Well, so the first one was change Rule 41, right. which was great. That's, that's great. That's, but the second that, that's one That's clearly was, their preferred solution. Right. And then all the way to the back was, well, you know, this whole discussion about the Federal Magistrates Act and the limits of Rule 41, uh, of Rule 41 doesn't, doesn't apply to district court judges. It only applies to magistrates. So if they had just gone and gotten the search warrant from the district court, uh, in the district judge, instead of the magistrates, uh, uh, they would have been fine. Right. Now, well, the, the judge does caveat that by saying that in addition to that, the, that you might have a, run into a Fourth Amendment problem because you do have to particularly describe the place to be searched in the application, and that would still be governing on the district court judge in addition to the magistrates. But um, but the judge in this case does point out uh, that in both the Eastern District of Wisconsin and the Western District of Washington, um, two courts have determined that this precise warrant was sufficient to pass that constitutional well, muster. For purposes of the particularity requirement, I can't imagine in the context of a computer search, if the computer's in the United States, I cannot imagine anything less relevant than where it is physically. Well, and that just highlights again the problem that these particular rules were not built for this particular age. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, district court judges, if the Justice Department starts flooding you with uh, warrant requirements and you say, well, give it to the magistrate, uh, nope, you brought this one on yourself. And federal law enforcement agents, note to self. Yes, exactly. <laughs> district uh, judge warrants only get, for get, NIT. Get the uh, judge out of bed. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, the FISA court has released, released an endless uh, um, opinion, but one – that's probably worth noting. Uh, it had to do with the uh, minimization rules that, that the uh, um, uh, FBI and uh, DOJ uh, and uh, NSA have written for 702 information that is collected. Now, 702 is uh, foreigners communicating through the United States, such as through Hotmail or Gmail. Uh, and a lot of data is collected, and one of the questions is, well, what should we do with it? What can we do with it? Um, and the most interesting thing about this case is that uh, the court, Judge Hogan, uh, uh, decided to use the amicus provision. He appointed Jamie, uh, Amy Jeffress uh, to uh, uh, write uh, a, an amicus brief, and uh, uh, she wrote something that... Uh, uh, is one of the articles of faith of uh, uh, a libertarian left on these issues, which is that uh, all that data that is collected for 702 um, can't be researched, uh, particularly for criminal purposes, without a warrant for each search. Uh, now, usually if you 
collect a bunch of data in a criminal case. It just sits there, and you could go research, research it to, uh, for any, almost any uh, reason. Um, but because NSA has been very fussy about allowing searches of certain databases, there's grown up this notion that there, uh, the Fourth Amendment requires separate warrants for each um, uh, research of uh, uh, data, particularly for purposes other than national security. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to hear that in the 702 debate, and it's also been uh, addressed now by a FISA judge who pretty conclusively rejected the whole thing. So, I, you know, the irony here, if there's irony, is that uh, by insisting on having a Miki uh, who could raise all these issues and getting transparency on opinions, uh, uh, the left is going to be faced when they raise this issue uh, in Congress with people saying, I'm sorry, that, that argument's been made and rejected in a persuasive and endless opinion, and uh, um, it, there's no reason for Congress to go uh, review that, and certainly no good argument that the Fourth Amendment requires us to do it. So, uh, interesting, uh, uh, naturally the press coverage uh, is uh, along the lines of uh, uh, FISA court very concerned about uh, surveillance practices of NSA and FBI, Uh, but I think the most important part of that decision is uh, the rejection of the Fourth Amendment argument. Um, Let's see, uh, we should uh, finish up. National security letters are now constitutional, says the only federal judge, as far as I can tell, who actually held they were unconstitutional. uh, uh, And basically, if I'm reading this right, um, she relied on the First Amendment, which has a bunch of procedural views before you can impose uh, uh, prior restraints, uh, to say a gag order is a prior restraint and you need to go through all of these uh, procedural hoops before you impose it. Uh, um, And you do, the statute doesn't call for that, so uh, I'm going to descri- uh, declare it illegal. Um, and then Congress passed a new law um, imposing some of these restraints but all, uh, uh, on uh, gag orders, but also uh, making clear that gag orders could continue for obvious reasons. Uh, um, and she read the statute and said, yeah, yeah, you stole my thunder, I'm done. Yeah, it was interesting. Um the only thing that 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 she didn't seem to loop back to was she starts with the with the discussion of the constitutional issues, then she talks about the litigation from the Second Circuit, right? Where um, the where, court, where, where they basically read all these constitutional rules into the existing statute. Right? Yes, basically they they, um, they by going to the statutory interpretation, they uh, allowed themselves to not look at the constitutional provisions, right? And then they accepted. Uh, a number of statements during the litigation uh, from the Justice Department about limitations that either were or would be applied um, in certain circumstances. Most of those were then incorporated into the revised statute, and then the judge said, okay, then then we're done. She doesn't loop back to the constitutionality Uh, um, in any really material way. But, Um, you know, we all know, you know, if you're a district court judge to say that uh, Congress passed this law uh, six months ago, but, you know, I'm smarter than all of those guys. It's still unconstitutional. That's a, a pretty 
uh, ballsy move. Well, it is the Ninth Circuit, and for a, for a, <laughs> a Northern District of California judge to defer to the Second Circuit uh, on its reasoning was, it was just a little interesting. Yeah. So. Okay. And uh, last thing uh, that I thought was interesting is that uh, um, China uh, has uh, a drone. Uh, uh, China produces drones. Uh, the drones produce data. Uh, and uh, uh, China's principal drone maker has now said, yeah, of course, when I produce data, I might send it back to China. So for the first time, we're facing a situation that we've seen with the United States a lot, where the uh, the data is stored in the United States uh, and the product is sold all over the world. Now suddenly we've got a product uh, sold all over the world, uh, cheap Chinese drones, uh, where the data is apparently, or at least can be sent back to China. I think when you put it up on their website uh, uh, for to show people the, your cool drone fit, footage, the website is hosted uh, in China and is uh, available to the Chinese government. So um, if, you're, if you're interested in bringing a challenge to uh, uh, the data export policies of the drone maker uh, under, say, the European uh, um, uh, data protection uh, and uh, uh, personal uh, uh, under their data protection rules, uh, if you want to challenge the adequacy of those rules in China, um, all of a sudden, we all have an opportunity to bring that case because our personal data, or at least our pictures, are going to show up on uh, drone uh, uh, footage stored in China. Well, and it's also it's interesting from another perspective because as we talk about in a number of other contexts, um, you know, the United States does these things from a governmental perspective, but under underpinning. All of that is that the the product, the U.S. product, is actually the more desirable product. We're not right. we're not concerned about vast numbers of Americans buying you know, Xiaomi phones. Here in this case, though, the DJI drone that's the best. It's a, the best cheap drone out there. Exactly, I can exactly. Yeah. And so uh, it may be a harbinger of things to come in terms of the actual consumer desirability of the products. Then leading to these questions. Yes, no, that's exactly right. Uh, um, sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. Uh, we may have to start putting restrictions on the export of personal data to countries that uh, don't have adequate uh, protections for civil rights. That would be ironic. Uh, okay, without further ado, let's turn to our panel of cryptographers. Uh, they are Patrick Henry, uh, who has uh, uh, worked at the at GCHQ, the uh, um, British version of NSA at NSA, and is now in the private sector, a cryptographer and security expert. Uh, um, Dan Kaminsky, the chief scientist at White Ops and a well-known security professional. Uh, Kiran Raj, uh, who is senior counsel to the deputy attorney general uh, in the Justice Department. Uh, and Dr. Zulfikar Ramzan, uh, who's the CTO of RSA Security. Uh, as I said, we'll be doing this uh, um, a, as a panel presentation uh, at uh, Catherine Latriante's uh, conference. Uh, and we'll start uh, with a question for Kieran Raj. What is it is the problem with encryption from the government's point of view? Sure. Thanks, Stuart. And, and let me, um, I know people are interested in the Apple case, and so let me just put a frame around the going dark problem and hopefully, you know, fit that case in to help folks understand, at least from our perspective, how, 
how it fits in. So for us, when we think about going dark, generally we refer to it as the government's inability to obtain critical information in electronic form, even though we have court authorization to do so. So that definition actually covers certainly encryption, but also covers a lot of non-encryption issues as well. And I just want to pause briefly on that because I think that's something that gets a little bit lost in the discussion where folks tend to focus generally on encryption. Just a couple of quick examples of a non-encryption going dark problem. One is data preservation or data loss. So that's a situation where the government will go to a provider with a court order or a search warrant, and the provider could say, we, have the, we had the information. It was unencrypted. We could have provided it to you, but we no longer have it. It's been deleted. It's gone. Another example is the technical inability to segregate information or provide information. So that's a situation, for example, where we might go to a real-time communications provider and say, can you give us metadata? And they'll say, we can't give you that specific metadata on the target that you're looking for because we just don't have an ability, a technical ability, a capability to give you that information, even though we see that you have a court order that authorizes you to get that information. Um, so those are two quick examples of a non-encryption problem that we Karen, have. Karen, let me, let, me, let me push you on that, because it's always been the case. You ask for uh, evidence, and somebody says, oh, I threw those files out last week. You're, you're, you're just out of luck, right? Uh, or uh, if somebody doesn't collect information, serving them with a subpoena, saying, well, we, we thought you would, uh, doesn't strike me as a going dark problem. It's just the way the world is. Yeah, it's not so much that they don't collect the information, Stuart. The situation is we're seeing technology evolve in such a way that there are new risks and challenges. So it is true that as, on a principle level, yes, you know, if two people were whispering in the woods, the government wouldn't be able to, to figure out what they said. But that doesn't really answer the question as to in a new environment where we have all this change in technology and more and more people communicating and uh, critical information existing in that space, how do we deal with those added risks and and, and how do we affect those, or how do, you know, how do we think about those? And so those are just challenges that we have from, uh, from the government perspective. But let me go to the encryption piece. I think that's where we'll spend the most of, of this uh, panel. So we tend to think about encryption in two different buckets. One is the um, data in motion. So that's things like instant messaging, uh, real-time communications applications, teleconferencing applications, things of that nature. And the second big bucket is data at rest. So that is you know, things like um, devices, USB sticks, cloud uh, services, things of that nature. And so um, in that bucket, you know, the data at rest is really where the litigations that folks have been focused on, and that's really where that sits. And if you think about it, that's really those litigations affected one aspect of one part of the overall going dark problem. And really, even for that particular company, it was only one particular um, product line. And even in that product line, it was only a couple of combinations of hardware and software. And so just to put it in that frame, I think it's important for people to understand how we think about the overall challenges here. You know, I think it's a little disingenuous. I keep hearing, oh, this is only going to be one thing, one phone. You know, the moment you got a hack on that phone, I saw a letter go out to every single state, local, federal, Indian tribe, law enforcement agency saying, now that we've got this one, 
got any more for us. This, so this is the inimitable uh, Dan Kaminsky speaking, <laughs> for those of you who uh, are, are, don't recognize the voice from past podcasts. So, so you know, I, I, I understand that this particular case was certainly focused on one, but that certainly didn't reflect the behavior as soon as access to that one was acquired. Yeah, I think, Dan, you're talking about opening Pandora's iPhone as well, right? <laughs> I mean, I think it's always the case that we want to work with our state and local partners. I mean, again, if they have cases where they're trying to access critical information to help victims, to solve crimes, I think that's a situation where, if we can, the federal government uh, does try to help, again, within the the lawful means that the Congress has set forth. Uh, But I do want to explain, you know, that is the overall framework of Going Dark. But it's important to understand that, um, you know, and this is, is probably... Uh, obvious, but important evidence is increasingly becoming uh, electronic. It's in electronic form. And in fact, nearly every criminal investigation that we undertake at the federal level relies in some part on electronic evidence. And so when we think about how does this affect our investigations and prosecutions, um, you know, I want to maybe give four categories just to help folks think about, um, you know, how that the inability to access this information might affect the investigations. The first is the inability to prevent crimes. So that's a situation where had we had access to the content of or specific information, we might have been able to prevent a crime. Now that's really just a data in motion problem, isn't it? I mean, the likelihood that you're going to stop a crime uh, that you don't know about by seizing a, a device is pretty low, right? Well, I think that's unfair. I think we prevent a tremendous amount of crime in the first place because the attacker only acquires encrypted information. Like, hey, you know, the bad guy got the hard drive, and it was random noise to them, and so the crime doesn't happen. The crime is prevented. So I guess I'm thinking about a scenario, I mean, just as a hypothetical, for example, you can imagine a scenario where we're up on a a wiretap pursuant to, you know, a wiretap order, and in the past, had we been able to, you know, we'd been able to see what the two bad guys had been saying, and they say, okay, at this time, we're going to meet at this particular street corner, and, you know, will sell five kilos of cocaine and there'll be an exchange. Like, that might be a situation where had we had access to the content, we could, you know, prevent the crime. So so that's just one category. Again, I just want to talk broad strokes and we can get into details. The second is the second type of category is the inability to sort of solve crimes. And so that is a situation where we don't have enough evidence uh, to be able to show to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that an individual or set of individuals... Um, committed a particular criminal activity. That's the second category. The third category is diversion of resources. So this is a situation where maybe in a particular high-profile case, it's all hands on deck. Like, everyone's going to focus on this to figure out we need everybody involved in this investigation um, and to get access or get information because the place where that would normally be the easiest is not accessible, so we have to go find other information. That diverts resources potentially from other cases and investigations. And the final, the fourth category, is one of delay. So this is situations where um, investigations, we might ultimately be able to get access to the information, but it is uh, delayed, whether four months, six months, or longer. And that might have consequences for um, the investigation. So so let me me, me stop you there, and I'll uh, ask uh, Zuli Ramzan to jump in uh, with a... uh, an industry or a cryptographer response to those complaints? 
Sure. So, you know, I think, you know, first of all, I think it's important to look at the overall context. We talk about going dark, but I think, if anything, we, we live in this golden age of surveillance today where there is a plethora of information about us. In fact, I would argue there's no paucity of data. If anything, there's an overabundance of it to the point that we don't know how to manage it from a national security level and how to even deal with that. So that's the first element. And then the second element, and I think Dan touched upon this, there's this fundamental issue of, Yes, I would agree, yeah, on the one hand, we want to help law enforcement. Obviously, at RSA, we try to protect customers, protect their networks. We want the world to be a safer place. We have that common mission in mind. But then the question becomes, do we have the means to achieve it in a way that's, that's safe and sane? And I think from a cryptographic perspective, we don't yet have that means to be able to do that in a way that's going to be safe. If you talk about things like exceptional access, which has been the, the key buzzword du jour after the whole Apple FBI case, to me, that's something we have not academically figured out how to do. In fact, we found a lot of issues with trying to do it successfully. As a cryptographer, as a cybersecurity person, I can tell you, we do not know today how to design truly secure systems. We get this wrong all the time. Experts make mistakes. When so you let, talk let about me, let me, yeah. let me let me stop you there for a second, because you've had 40 goddamn years to build yeah. secure systems using the engineering approach and, and 20 years where encryption was basically decontrolled. If encryption was going to solve our problems, shouldn't it have solved it by now? Well, let me put it this way. We have law enforcement. We have burglar alarms. We've got uh, security cameras. Does crime still exist? I would argue yes. We, we do not try to, to protect our stuff and our people by building bigger forts around the houses Correct. that we live in. Uh, and yet that's what the engineers are telling us to do. Oh, just no, no. I would, I would actually, fort and we'll know, solve this problem. In fact, I would vehemently disagree. The goal is not to build. In fact, I think taller walls and deeper moats are not going to solve anyone's problems. They'll keep a little bit out. But the reality, and I think Admiral Rogers touched upon this earlier, it's no longer a question of, you know, when you're going to, if you're going to compromise, it's when you're going to compromise because we are dealing with an adaptive adversary, somebody who has both the means and the motivation and the desire to try to compromise systems. And the crypto is pretty much useless for preventing uh, compromises. Isn't I, it? I wouldn't say it's You know, useless. if it was so useless, why are you having to spend a million dollars to break it? Right. So, so it's, it was great against getting contents, but most <laughs> crimes are not uh, crimes of gathering the content of data as it travels or pulling it off your computer. They're breaking into your system while you're using it, while you're looking at data, and they're taking the data from you by social engineering mm -hmm. or otherwise getting you to compromise the data in ways that the encryption is not protecting. Yeah, so I mean, what, what we're seeing here is that encryption... This is, is Patrick Henry, I should say, another cryptographer uh, uh, who has background at GCHQ and uh, uh, at NSA, I think. So in encryption is a, a security mechanism, but what you're really trying to use it for is access control. So the underlying thing that you're trying to... Uh, manage is access control and encryption just happens to be the technical mechanism by which you do that and managing access control in a sane and rational way is very hard um, one thing we've done in the last 40 years is is package encryption to the point where you can you don't need uh, a phd now to implement the algorithms the algorithms you can just grab off the shelf but you still need to use them correctly and doing so is hard, and spotting flaws is hard. I, I uh, give a, an example to, to some people, like prospective new hires. It's like 10 lines of Python. It instantiates an AES 
uh, algorithm, gives it a key, gives it an IV, gives it some data, encrypts it, prints out as it goes, and I say, tell me what's wrong with it. And, and people, even respected colleagues, look at me and say, I can't see what's wrong with it. Well, what's wrong with it is that you've got a 64-bit key that you've encoded as hex. And, and you've given the algorithm something it wasn't quite expecting or done something in a way to, to degrade the security that is hard to detect. Yeah, I think to that point, it's, it's the reality that building secure systems is hard. So I agree with you uh, since uh, the engineers have failed for, for so long. Um, Why is managed trust that have failed? Hmm? Why is it just engineering that's failed? Well, because I think it's the engineers who told us what security is and how to get it. And they keep saying, if there weren't for these idiot people getting in the way of this perfect system I designed, no, we I wouldn't have that. this problem. Well, let, no, I, let, I don't, I wouldn't say here, here's the thing. You know, first off, we've only been doing this for a fairly short amount of time. The iPhone came out in 2007. We've been building bridges and buildings for thousands of years. And until fairly recently, they burned really frequently. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of work to be done. Part of what's happened only fairly recently is just everyone started putting all of their data on our toys, okay? This Internet was designed not for, you know, global economic work. It was designed to move pictures of cats. It just happened to be the thing that worked best. So, you know, give us a bit now that there's actually consensus. And I have to point out, as much as there's consensus that the Internet should be secure, now that we're starting to build actual secure systems, really making progress on the hardware foundations, cryptography is about creating a foundation for security. It doesn't establish anything useful any more than bedrock does. But good luck building anything good without bedrock. So the, the, the security is the security that's provided by Apple, which recently disclosed that uh, all you had to do was change their device clock back to 1970 and it would brick your machine, or that silently stopped doing security updates for QuickTime for, uh, uh, for Windows. Uh, uh, these are the guys who are protecting our, our security. It's not about 2016. It's about the increasing trend line towards an actual secure infrastructure. It's about seeing things in 2018, 2019, and the question of, in 2019, are we going to have to do breach reports when someone loses a phone or not? Which one is the desired end state? And there's a debate, and that's the debate we're having. Okay, kind of so building on that, I do think it's a fundamental point here, which is that complexity and security are antithetical to each other. We are talking about highly complex systems. As they get more complex, we tend to find more security flaws. That's no surprise. I think what we're trying to say is that if you now have this already complex system, and now I'm going to make it even more complex by adding additional requirements around things like exceptional access and whatnot, I shouldn't be surprised if I can literally would, would, would break the very foundation on which we rely upon. Go ahead. Can I jump in? Because I, I do hear the term exceptional access and sometimes magic unicorn key and other type of things from folks in the security field. And one question I have for them is when we look out empirically at the private sector today, we see a number of companies, in fact, many companies even in this room, that use encryption on the one hand and yet can maintain access to the content on the other. So we have situations like email providers, for example, who they do it for actually a number of reasons probably. One is for business purposes to you know, sell targeted advertising, but another reason too is for security purposes, right? They scan emails for malware, they scan for spam. And so I guess one question for the security folks is, 
Have folks done a study to say that empirically speaking, when you have a system where only the end user can access the information, it is more secure? Because one can imagine in the email provider example, um, you know, it may actually be more secure to allow the email provider to have access to content so that you're not inundated with spam, that you're not getting malware attached to your emails. I mean, I just don't know. It's a question. So, no, no, I think, right, so it's a very nuanced debate. I think this is, we're getting at the heart of that debate and why it's so nuanced and complex. And I, and I would agree that, yes, in, in certain scenarios, there are benefits to allowing, let's say, third-party access within certain confines. I think the challenge becomes that you try to make that much more broad and much more extensive. But now, much you're, more now you're arguing not against complexity, but against complexity that helps the FBI, aren't you? Well, no, no. I think, I think I'm, I'm arguing that if you get to a point where there is significant complexity and now you're talking about the potential of, of making, let's say, every iPhone or every device less secure, we're not talking about fundamental weakening, a fundamental weakening of the infrastructure that we all rely upon. So let me ask this. Can I, Apple, can I break in on the exceptional access thing? Because I think it's fairly easy to build an exceptional access system uh, while having uh, encryption, uh, sort of full disk encryption. Um, and that's when you think of the, um, uh, the, the point of the encryption is for access control. Um, and all you need is a way to provide an access control token to the device to say, give me access. And normally this is a pin. Occasionally you could have something where Apple signs something with a key that they own that they don't give to anybody that says, unlock this device, not before this time, not after this time. There you go. Sign but, that. But don't they have that now? That's how right. they send us updates. They, well, Apple well, has exceptional so, access. No, it, it, would be, it would have to be distinct from the update system. Yeah, I don't think it's actually that easy because now think about what you've done when you allow for, let's say, let's say your sort of straw man exceptional access system. All of a sudden you've thrown out things like Perfect for secrecy, which is no longer possible. You can't do things like authenticated encryption, and that's just the technical side of things. When you talk about the operational side, the key management elements, how do you decide jurisdiction? How do you decide who gets to decide who is going to allow for exceptional access and, and what cases? Right. How do you deal with international jurisdictions? So I think that there are, there are certainly technical elements. You can address some of them, but not others, but you've got to be able to be clear about what you're willing to give up. Then there's operational elements, which now, again, You've got to be willing to decide and answer a lot of fundamental questions. I think the challenge that we've seen is that we have engaged in this exceptional access debate without maybe a clear understanding of how we're going to answer a litany of questions along those lines. I think if we had those answers, we'd be able to maybe have a more intelligent and a deeper debate around this issue. Well, it's important to look at where the predecessors are for exceptional access. SS7, the signaling system for the telephone system, has been a security nightmare and has been left a security nightmare uh, with intent. Um, you Absolutely. Look at, you look at uh, law enforcement, look, you look at hard drives. You know, hard drives have been getting exploited for decades. And we could have had a world where Intelligence said maybe we shouldn't have every hard drive in every government institution and Fortune 500 company be a thing. You can compromise these devices not on the spinning platter, but they're also computers themselves. You can break them. But we've decided, no, we like it that way because we can break other people's systems and we'll leave our own ones vulnerable uh, in exchange. 
So every time I see exceptional access, I see holes left in fundamental infrastructure for our society that... Uh, uh, so, Dan, Dan I, I, I hear you. Why can't I just as easily say Apple left a hole in every uh, product that they make so that they could get back in and change the code? Because they fix it. And if they didn't so, fix so that, it, those holes would be you're, closed. You're saying, you're saying they made exceptional access, but they were really careful about it. Well, what and, and that's what I think. What, isn't that what Jim Comey is suggesting? What, what, what I'm saying is, so if you look at the actual world, you see ad blockers all over the place, which is once a technology is used against the user, users fight back. And if users fought back by going ahead and shutting off automatic updating, we would not have a world where security holes ever closed. Now, that might be good for certain actors, but it would not be good for society as a whole. So, uh, fair enough that uh, it would be dumb to turn off automatic updates. Uh, or to impact it. would reduce it. Your, your security. Uh, but, uh, by and large, most people are not worried about uh, the need for uh, security against law enforcement. Uh, I, and so they're not going to turn off their automatic updates. Uh, There's a million people a month using Tor. There's a lot of people out there that are genuinely worried about what's going on. And if you go ahead, if we actually did go ahead and affect one of these update infrastructures, because it's been suggested by quite a few, people would turn it off. And a world where people are not patching their security holes is where we were back when we had worms regularly taking down so the infrastructure. So let me ask you a question. I hadn't thought about that, a world where the people don't patch. Uh, uh, isn't that their lickout? You know, uh, on the whole, if you patch, you're secure, but there's a possibility of law enforcement access. And if you don't patch, you're just screwed. So you've done something very stupid uh, uh, in the name of some theoretical privacy. Uh, what's wrong with the world where we say, yeah, you, you have to uh, take uh, law enforcement access with the updates? Because your data is not in the hands of just you. It's in the hands of a large number of parties. And if any of those parties are opting out of... Uh, of the security technologies that Fair we've enough. developed over the last 10 years, then you are vulnerable. There is a herd immunity effect that we absolutely have to protect, and I keep seeing it get threatened. Yeah, I think in one thing, you know, we look at the topic of this, the whole debate was national security and encryption, right? And, it, you know, when we think about national security, it's very easy to say, okay, the U.S., national security. What about other nefarious actors, third parties who may be enemies of the state who now may have access to that same data and what implications does that create? So, so I think it's me, important me, to look at it I, much I more think holistically. That's, that, that's a fair question, and, and it, it, this, is, this was Apple's argument. Uh, bad companies will, bad countries will get access to this. But that's an argument against having an update key, because bad comp- countries can get access to Apple's update key as well, can't they? Yeah, I think, you know, that's certainly... But we, we, uh, ha- we still have update keys because we think the security risks of not having them, the social... Uh, risks of not having updates are worse than the risk of China breaking in and stealing Apple's key. So uh, my point here is the argument that it's impossible, it's brain dead to ask for this, uh, no responsible cryptographer would do this, is just wrong because responsible cryptographers help to build the Apple update system. Yeah, I think when, when I say it's technically infeasible, I mean you cannot meet sort of what cryptographers have considered to be proper security requirements if you enable it. There, there's no debate about that. That's not something that's even up. There's sort of a, that's a black and white issue. There's also a deeper shades of gray issue, which I think you're raising, which is this is not just a binary decision around do we allow it or not allow it. 
Ultimately, there are many forces at play. It's a decision along a continuum about how you deal with those different forces. You obviously have national security interests. You have law enforcement interests on the one hand. You've got privacy. You've got security. You've got commercial interests on the other. And we have to strike an appropriate balance between those two interests. And I think what we end up missing in that debate is I think that there's – you have the policymakers on the one hand who may not fully appreciate or understand – the technical ramifications of enabling something like exceptional access. And I think that's when we end up going down this very slippery slope. We, we assume that it's much easier to do because it sounds so simple, exceptional access. It's a very simple thing to say, but it's very extensibly simple. In reality, the implementation so of it's hard. Like that is But that's, that's quite different from the claim that it's technically, it's a magic unicorn. No, uh, I, 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 I want to be very clear here. Possible. So I want to be very clear here. When I say it's, when I'm not saying it's a magic unicorn, I'm saying that if you were to try to develop a system around exceptional access, here are the challenges you've got to overcome. So I said perfect forward secrecy, out the door. Authenticated encryption, a very good practice, out the door. Things you just simply cannot do cryptographically and enable exceptional access. The so second the, element I think is, is la- la- procedural. I'm sorry, I, don't yeah. mean to, I think labels in, in this discussion tend to matter a little, and there's two that have been sort of floating around in this discussion that I just want to take a moment to pause on. One is uh, law enforcement access, because it suggests something nefarious. And just to be clear, you know, what uh, we want is a situation that the government wants is where you can get a court order, search warrant or something else, and go to a provider, and the provider gives you the information that is requested or ordered in the court order. And how the provider does it, it can be a black box, right? And that's where we get to this, this you know, what we say is there is no one-size-fits-all. It depends on the product, depends on the service, and the providers are in the best position to figure it out. So whether it's auto-update or some other mechanism, the provider is in the best position. That's number one. The second is exceptional access. And any, every time it's been used here, it's always been used in conjunction with law enforcement requests. And I think, Stuart, you were getting at this a little bit earlier. And, you know, a question back to the panel is, again, we see a plethora of companies out there, whether in the corporate space or in the consumer space, that use encryption yet maintain access to content. Do you all consider that exceptional access? Because I think what folks in the sort of general uh, audience might think is exceptional access is only for law enforcement, so when in so fact it's much I think that's, that's a fair question. So we've already established that all that, those phones we have actually have exceptional access for Apple, uh, and now they probably also have exceptional access for our employers. Uh, uh, let me ask Patrick to address that, and then uh, Dan and uh, Zuli. So I think if you're uh, in the corporate space, there are much different pressures involved. Um, with regard to maintaining access, especially within publicly traded companies, maintaining access to uh, date, official data um, by employees of your company. Um, so I, I would consider that as, as a kind of separate thing from this but that's because there's costs associated. For example, if there's insiders in the company that are doing something nefarious, companies want to be able to, to, to see that happen. And so I think the point, I think your point is there's costs to not having access to content. And so right. we're broadening it back out. That's part of what we're saying as law enforcement is that there are costs, public safety and national security costs, when law enforcement with appropriate court authorization is unable to access critical So, Zuli, all of those companies are giving up perfect forward secrecy. They're giving up authenticated encryption, and they think it's worth it. They're actually spending money to give that up. Uh, um, why shouldn't the social value of uh, solving crimes also lead us to say we're going to make the same compromise? That's a fair question, and I think, I think it's important. I think, you know, we, we just sort of talked about this earlier. They are distinct situations. You've got to look at the overall operational impact 
of doing this in a more contained environment and the risks associated with that versus trying to make it a much more global and extensive environment. So I, I wouldn't disagree. There are certainly situations in which it is helpful to have that type of access. I mean, obviously, we have security is not just crypto. It's one of the first things I learned after doing my PhD was crypto is actually not the real reason systems get broken. Um, you know, I could try to break the crypto. I could also buy a six-pack of beer to the guy driving the backup takes the data center and probably get the data much faster that way. Or I could simply send the person an email and say, hey, give me your password, not in those exact words, but something like it, and I'll probably succeed some fraction of the time. Patrick, we won't ask you to comment on that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so the the point here being that, you know, ultimately these are trade-offs, but I think that what we have to do is we have to make sure that we account for all those critical questions and, and, and are comfortable with all the answers to those questions before we really proceed down that debate. And I think that's something we haven't done when we've looked at it at a much broader scale yet. I think companies can do it at a much smaller scale, and it's, it's, a, it's a much more tenable problem to attack in, in that capacity. So I don't want to get too far down this road without uh, acknowledging the uh, argument that uh, Apple made, which is that uh, uh, there are bad governments, not just good governments, uh, and that they will take advantage of whatever access mechanism uh, we create. Um, And the implication was that Apple would never do a deal with a bad government, which is, as far as I can tell, poppycock, because they've done uh, a deal of the worst sort with one of the worst governments, that is to say with the Chinese. They've installed a classified algorithm in every Chinese iPhone. Uh, um, Patrick, do you know anything about exactly what... uh, uh, crypto policy is in China and what kinds of encryption they're uh, foisting on people through the, uh, uh, through the iPhone? Well, um, as I understand it, those algorithms were declassified. Um, oh, they have been declassified? I think so. Okay. Um, and and have they been uh, examined for backdoors? Uh, yes, to some extent. Um, now, as, uh, as Dan said, when you, when you look at sort of telecom infrastructure algorithms, they tend to be... Uh, Happy. Well, let's just say the the, the telcos have no uh, inherent um, incentive to secure user data. They have an inherent incentive to secure billing and access. Um, and so there's nothing there to discourage them from cooperating with whatever nation states uh, want to degrade their crypto algorithms or even just give them crypto algorithms, and so this you was, see this, this was Apple. The they, they're standing up for our rights everywhere around the world. Mm, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, if you look at the, the early GSM algorithms, they were a little bit obvious. If you look at the, uh, the more recent algorithms, it's not quite so obvious. If you look at the, like, uh, there's one uh, ZUC, I think, uh, that uh, was one of these Chinese algorithms, it's got linearity all the way through it. It's, it's not, I mean, I, I haven't done a formal cryptanalysis of it, but just looking at the picture, I can see ways to tease it apart. Uh, there's, there's another algorithm, uh, SMS4, uh, which, which uh, is uh, basically a Feistel cipher, and um, it's quite possible there are properties in the S-boxes that people haven't realized uh, except for the designers. It would not be surprising to see that being exploitable by the Chinese but harder to exploit by others. In fact, it would be surprising for it not to be the case. Uh, the thing is, who are you going to talk to with that crypto algorithm? 
Are you talking to a Chinese cell phone tower? If so, you're talking to a Chinese cell phone tower you've already lost. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think you have your perspective. That's a very, very good point. And I think, look, historically, I mean, there's been a lot of somehow crypto and conspiracy theorists have always sort of been attracted to each other for many years. In fact, you know, I remember back in the 70s when DES was being designed and there was a conspiracy theory that, you know, the NSA was involved. They had made some changes to the S-Box and DES. The conspiracy theorists came out and said, oh, they're trying to put a back door, X, Y, and Z. And then many years later, it came out that, in fact, what they had done was actually hardened DES, made it more secure against an attack known as differential cryptanalysis, which the public community hadn't known about, but that the NSA had figured out many, many years before in advance. So they, in fact, had made it more secure. So I think... You know, the NSA, all, they're not Similar monoliths, they're, they're mosaics. Yeah, but we're, right. talking about, we're talking about China. These are the guys who built audio capability into their equivalent of EasyPass and sold it to everybody in Hong Kong uh, so they could just turn it on and listen to you as you drove. Right, but I think this is a perfect case where we don't, you know, we haven't looked, clear, I mean, in some cases we have looked carefully, there, there's some really bad cipher designs out there. I've also seen a lot of bad U.S. cipher designs as well as Chinese ones. I don't think it's a problem that's limited to one particular nationality or country. Uh, but there's also a lot of good Chinese cryptographers out there, those who have contributed to the academic community for years and have identified a lot of interesting ideas within the community. So I think we can't look at this in a very monolithic and, and put a single label and say it's China is bad, U.S. is good. I think you got to be much more nuanced and look more carefully and do a deeper investigation and say, look, is this really a bad algorithm? Is this algorithm going to be used for encrypting some critical data in, in a critical setting, and, and should we examine it more carefully? Let me ask, let me ask Dan. So it, it comes down to engineering requirements. Do you want it to be good, or do you want it to be good enough for some vague value of good enough? And what you keep seeing with these closed crypto designs is invariably there's an engineering requirement. Yeah, make it good so maybe those guys can't get it, but we still need to be able to break through with our magic, highly funded crypto knowledge and a couple acres of computing capacity. And as it happens, none of that crap ever works. It just doesn't. Your ability to model your attacker's cryptographic capabilities is poor. And it has a very short half-life. Yeah. So I, I, I think most people would agree that if you try to just sort of uh, choose exactly the right key length, uh, um, it's not going to work as a way of getting access that only you can get. But I think Patrick said there are certainly other ways in which you can give yourself an access advantage that others will have difficulty getting. Um, uh, NSA has been accused of that fairly often. Okay. Uh, Dan, let me ask you this question, uh, talking about uh, authoritarian regimes. I think you could make the argument that what Apple has done by protecting access and refusing to uh, uh, let people in if they don't have the passcode uh, has been to disadvantage Western countries that respect the rights of criminal defendants, but that anybody else who's arrested with an iPhone is just going to uh, be taken in the back room and beaten up until they give up, give up their passcode. Uh, which it will certainly be easy to tell whether they gave up the right passcode because you just put it in and it either opens or it doesn't. I, Wait a minute. So, which category are you placing the U.S. in? Hmm? I am putting the category in the category of countries that respect the rights of criminal defendants. Oh, surprising. Well, I, I'll, I'll, <laughs> all right. Name, name three countries that you would put uh, in a uh, position of respecting the rights of criminal defendants more. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I, I, I thought... <laughs> hmm? 
I can't think of many. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, uh, on, a, and a, on a realist spectrum, uh, the U.S. is clearly on the side of respecting the rights of criminal defendants more than, say, uh, everybody's favorite totalitarian or authoritarian regime. Uh, uh, but authoritarian regimes will have access to iPhones whenever they want. Whenever they uh, catch people with the iPhone, uh, they'll get access. Only uh, the West will be unable to get access. Does that sound like a, an intelligent policy, Dan? You know, uh, I'd like to point out the whole concept of the Bill of Rights is here's a bunch of things that might be convenient for the government that uh, we're just not going to do because not. that makes for a poor society to live in. Not without and a court order. And in exchange, order. we get the best and brightest from around the world getting the heck out of their authoritative regimes and coming here. The whole point of the United States is we don't do this stuff. Like, that's the idea. Well, and just, we profit quite just, a bit just from Just to it. be clear, I mean, we're talking about court orders and search warrants. So the requirements of the Fourth Amendment and, frankly, laws that Congress put on, like the Wiretap Act, which actually have higher requirements than the Fourth Amendment, are being satisfied. So that's the situation we're talking about, where we've already satisfied our legal obligations um, and, and gotten a new, neutral judge, neutral magistrate, on a particular showing of probable cause, reason to believe some individual has been involved in criminal activity. So that's what we're talking about here. It's important to keep that in mind. So let's, let's talk about what we're actually talking about here, because you get a tremendous amount of cooperation. I've personally been involved in these sorts of matters with, with Apple, with Microsoft. Tech has supported law enforcement ever since it started getting into the communication game. However, we are at the point now where there's a desire to make it literally impossible for the devices and systems that we build, that we deploy, that we sell, that we support, making it impossible for those systems to block you. And that's concerning because we do have general purpose computing. We do provide computers that then other people can write software for. Um, the most popular package, you know, you want to talk about engineering failures and successes. We all used to use a protocol called Telnet. It was an unencrypted way of managing the computers we use to build our, uh, frankly, to design our culture now, to build the infrastructure for it. And we stopped using Telnet because it was wildly unsafe. And we started using SSH which is encrypted, it has forward secrecy, it is the very definition of the sort of software that is incredibly difficult to build under a Feinstein-Burr regime. And, you know, I look at SSH and I wonder, like, what did it give us? Well, it gave us the cloud. Do you think you could have information technology infrastructure that lived all around the world if you couldn't have secure encrypted links to it all over the place? And I wonder, is someone going to visit the creators of OpenSSH? Is someone going to visit a guy named Theo Durat and say, dude, you have to go ahead and give us extraordinary access? It would kill the software long before you'd ever get that. I, I, I do think that we, we ought to spend a little time on Burr Feinstein. I know that uh, uh, Kieran can't or uh, is... Uh, uh, it, thinks it would be imprudent to comment on uh, pending legislation that the Justice Department is prohibited from taking a position on. Uh, uh, but let's let's talk about Burr-Feinstein, because that has been uh, the source of a lot of, uh, uh, you know, harsh uh, technical analyses. Uh, brain dead, I think, was the nicest thing somebody <laughs> said about it. Uh, that seems accurate. But it, it, let me ask this. Uh, Karen, can you describe what it is that, that Burr-Feinstein actually 
calls for? Or you want me to yeah, do you, are you, are you comfortable doing that? Right? I'm, I'm happy to do yeah. it. Okay. So I, as I read it, it's a, it's a performance standard. If you make or provide uh, a system um, and it encrypts the, uh, the content, then when law enforcement brings you a court order, uh, you have to be able to provide uh, decrypted, intelligible uh, uh, content. Uh, um, and it essentially says that everybody who um, is in the encryption business also needs to be in the decryption business. Uh, um, it's a tough standard, but uh, I think we've established we're doing it now for the companies. Uh, uh, we're doing it for Apple so they can update. So, so first off, I want to be clear. Uh, the legislation <laughs> is not constrained merely to direct encryption providers. It very explicitly says if your software is then used, if you license your software such that other software is using encryption, you have to, you have to provide a break as well. Now, you know, they're trying to make you think about the App Store, but really all software is licensed, even open source. And we just had a U.S. attorney outright state that open source encryption software should probably be banned. It goes beyond software. Any method for rendering data unintelligible. So Mm -hmm. uh, clearly at this point, Congress themselves would be in violation for rendering the very law (laughs) unintelligible. They have a method for doing that. You've spent too much time with the congressional record, I think. (laughs) So uh, uh, the the objections to Burr-Feinstein included a number of uh, uh, concerns. One of them was open source. Uh, uh, It's easy enough to say if a company provides something, we're going to uh, serve the court order on the company, but uh, open source could be written by hundreds of people. And hundreds of companies could have contributed. Uh, who do you serve the order on? No one's going to answer that because everybody it's, would it's, prefer. It's, you're, you're entirely correct. It is logistically an infeasible proposition. The the advantage of open processes is it's just genuinely difficult to hide your. By the way, it has to only be so secure, good enough. Someone's going to openly point out, what are you doing? Why is this hole here? Yeah, I, you know, I have to say, I, I suspect that. Uh, um, the encryption code is probably provided by somebody, and it's almost certainly a company because, you know, 90 or 95 percent of most open source now comes from corporate uh, contributors. You How probably could track that person. There's a lot of contributors to open SSL. There's hundreds of crypto projects from 53 countries. This is a technology. This is a genie that's out of the bottle. Okay. Um, so let me ask about the uh, the other big argument against Burr-Feinstein, which is that it will cripple U.S. industry. Uh, um, I'm, I'm puzzled by that, and I'd like somebody to, 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 to answer this question. Uh, um, anybody who sells something in the United States is subject to the jurisdiction of the United States and can get a court order. It doesn't matter whether they're based in Beijing or Berlin or uh, uh, New York. Uh, a, all of them can be served with orders, and if they don't obey the order, they can be punished for failing to obey the order. I, I don't see why this is somehow going to single out U.S. technology and make it suspect around the world. 
I do notice that uh, a lot of American firms are having to move their data offshore. So a lot of Microsoft data is having to go to Ireland. Yeah, you well, notice there's, there's the, a huge fight against that. People buy. are worried about the, the fact that it's located here. But if you're, if you're buying a product from a company based in Berlin that has encryption and that company makes a boatload of money in the United States, they are subject to U.S. jurisdiction and they will be subject to this requirement, won't they? What if you're buying uh, a product or service in Berlin? Uh, suddenly you can buy from... Uh, local EU uh, manufacturers, but you don't dare buy from uh, U.S. manufacturers because you know there are explicit backdoors built into it. You can buy from somebody who doesn't have enough um, talent or market share to to sell any products in the United States. If China was saying the sort of things that we were saying, I am sure you would be much stronger against buying China. I, 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 no, I don't think I could be much stronger against buying <laughs> Chinese products. Uh, and yet, you know. Do you uh, have a cell phone? Let, let me. Let I me mean, ask, like any? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and uh, uh, probably one of the fastest growing uh, uh, phones, so some of the fastest growing market shares uh, for phones are Chinese products that, mm-hmm. oh, come on, are almost certainly buggered. Let's, let's, let's get real. Uh, and. I don't hear a lot of consumers saying, oh, well, I wouldn't buy that phone because it's probably buggered. Uh, uh, they're just buying it because it's 50 bucks cheaper. Uh, and that suggests that that's going to be the impact in the world markets uh, of this uh, uh, requirement, even if it did differentially affect U.S. products, which I don't think it does. Somebody's going to figure out how to build secure code at scale, and that somebody's going to own the next Silicon Valley. That's the bottom line. It is actually possible to write secure code. This this nihilistic security model of we just can't figure it out and oh well is going to go away because someone's going to get it working. So well, you, let me, let me and ask you if we could... keep spending all of our energy arguing about things being possibly too secure, when are we going to start talking seriously about how we're going to deal with the stuff that's not secure enough? Is right. is taking the oxygen from the real security debate? It's ridiculous. So I, I would actually think that, you know, yes, it would be wonderful if we figure out a way to write truly secure code and, and, and whatnot. I think there are tools that can help us get part of the way there, and, and maybe somebody will figure out how to get that last element of it. Um, but I think there's also a much broader problem in security. It's not always about the code. In fact, you know, a very small fraction of people who get compromised get compromised because of a software vulnerability. It's typically things like a spear phishing attack or social engineering and, and whatnot. So I think that, you know, we are dealing with, with, with a very complex, security is a very complex problem. And, it, and that's, you know, as I said earlier, like we haven't quite figured out how to build secure systems yet. I wasn't being facetious. I mean, look at all these companies that get compromised repeatedly. There's reasons why companies like RSA are in business to try to help people become more and more secure. This has been a long-standing issue for, for many, many years. I don't see us solving it overnight. We are trying to make it better over time. But I think it's a journey, not a, not a point in time. So, so I do want to respond to you on one point, sure. where you say that spear phishing is not a technical problem. It absolutely is. Oh, I didn't so say it was spear a technical phishing, problem, but it's a... Spear phishing is when, like, your CEO, you think you're getting a mail from your CEO saying, hey, can you send all the W-2s somewhere? And you're like, well, it looks like an email from my CEO. I'll go ahead and do that. And people think this is a pure social problem. No. In the real world, your CEO walks up to you and you recognize the person. You see their face, you hear their voice, you actually have a remarkable amount of strong authentication, which we've pretended it's the same when it's pixels on your screen. And it's not. 
What's missing is a sort of cryptographic identifier. What's missing is links to the individual. What's missing is an entire flow which could absolutely be technically stronger and isn't. And we're just blaming people because, my God, we love to blame people. And we're not blaming weak technology. I'm, and I'm gonna, that, engineers have failed. So, so let, me, let, me, let me, first of all, I, I want to make it clear, I don't think, you know, I'm not saying spearfishing isn't a technical problem. There are certainly technical countermeasures. But at the end of the day, remember, cryptographic protocols are between machines, but there's humans on both ends of those yeah. machines. Let's take a look at something like digital signing. Okay, let's say you digitally signed everything. You did all these wonderful cryptographic techniques. So now what? If I receive an email that's digitally signed, am I going to take my calculator out and my computer out and verify the signature manually? No. I'm going to look at a piece of user interface that maybe is a check marks on, on, the, on, the, on the email that says, oh, this is digitally signed. I'm not going to expect someone to be a mathematician to verify it. I'll look for the check mark. And now you have to worry about what if somebody spoofs a check mark or puts a different check mark. <laughs> so at the end of the day, there's this last, last 12 inches, so to speak, between the computer and the human. Now, I will absolutely not blame humans. I'm not going to say I can't believe the end user did this. I think we can do a better job of building better systems. But what I'm saying is that there's always going to be a lot of difficulty in trying to design truly secure systems. There's many ways you can compromise a system, not just in a, from, from the perspective of a technical vulnerability. You can look for other elements as well that can be compromised. So this, 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 this takes us into uh, uh, territory that Jim Comey has explored, uh, uh, using all of his salary for the next seven and a half years. Mm -hmm. uh, he purchased a, a mechanism for getting access to the uh, 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 the iPhone in question um, is that is that the solution? I've heard I've heard serious uh, uh, technical and uh, libertarian uh, uh, people say, you know, the solution is uh, we just need to keep spending more on access, uh, uh, hacking these systems. And if law enforcement would invest in that, they wouldn't have to bother poor Apple with requests that they devote um, uh, three engineers for three weeks. It's at best a short-term solution to the FBI's specific problem with a much longer-term problem that it introduces. I would actually say yeah, so it's, I mean, a, it's, it's actually um, it's even worse than that in some ways because, um, as I started at the beginning, the going dark challenge is much broader. And so uh, the particular method used on one particular phone uh, which is, you know, again, a combination of uh, iPhone 5C and iOS 9. And that's a very, very specific, um, you know, hardware-software combination. And so, you know, it's expensive and time-consuming. Uh, I mean, even in that case, you know, uh, as we've said, you know, there was worldwide attention on that case that spurred some sort of market innovation, and it still took over four months, right? It's just not a scalable solution. It doesn't work, and I think the director talked a little bit about that this morning. It doesn't work across different platforms. It doesn't even work across, um, you know, some of the different product lines. And so it's hard to see how that is an overall solution to the problem, even at the federal level. And then if you add in the 18,000-plus state and locals who also deal with various challenges on the, from encryption um, and, and going dark in general, um, it's hard to see how it solves the whole So, Kieran, if it's not problem. a solution, why did he do it? Again, as, as I think actually the director said this morning, we have to use every lawful tool in our toolbox. And so, you know, when a third party came to us and provided us, uh, you know, showed us this method, we tested it, it found that work. I mean, ultimately, our goal is to do a full and complete investigation in the San Bernardino 
um, attack, and that's what we're doing. And so, you know, we had lawful authority to use it. We used it, and, and that's what we'll do in every case where we'll always use whatever appropriate legal means we have to move forward with our investigations and our prosecutions. Dan, do you, uh, are you going to make it a consensus that uh, uh, buying exploits is not the solution for law enforcement? You know, I think the, uh, the acquisition of exploits by offense-oriented organizations is inevitable. I think it's a little silly to pretend that they are not it's silly to pretend that they're not going to buy the exploits and silly to pretend that they're not going to use them and it is super silly to pretend they're ever going to share their exploits but it's not However, a scalable solution it, it's certainly not a scalable solution and where i think we need to be spending a lot more money is on the defensive side yes there's going to be offensive organizations that are going to do their exploit game that's just the reality of it but where's the millions of dollars for okay let's find these bugs and frankly from a larger how are we building a society scale we need iphones that aren't crackable we need android phones that aren't crackable we're not getting a million dollars to go crack those things so let me let me (laughs) let me use that that to pivot to try to explain my uh uh, earlier uh, attack on engineers in general because it's not an attack on engineers but on the limited focus of engineers on the idea that there's a technical solution to all this in fact Almost all the security problems we have in the world and all the security solutions we come up with end up depending on punishment, deterrence, the vulnerability of the attacker to uh, social um, uh, uh, discipline in some fashion. Uh, And what I am astonished by is the reluctance of engineers to build that into systems of which this, the, the reluctance to, to recognize that law enforcement has an interest in getting access is a part. Uh, it's like a, this profound blind spot on the part of the engineers uh, that the rest of us, I think, uh, don't have. You know, I, I think the fair thing to say is the vast majority of this sort of crime that is dealt with is dealt with by prevention. We can go ahead and find people all day and they don't get busted. You can go ahead and have a whole legitimate series of reasons about jurisdictions and difficulties and multilateral agreements. But at the end of the day, when we want to prevent hackers from breaking into something, like when we want to make that thing not, the data not get lost, we have to engineer our way out of the problem. We don't deal with buildings burning by prosecuting more arsonists. We deal with it with building codes. So I I, I would disagree. I think that, uh, you know, safes prevent people from stealing uh, uh, money, but they don't really work by being absolutely impervious. They, you're lucky. The best safe you can buy is going to last two hours, three hours. If ISIS takes over your town, they're going to get the money. Uh, and what we're really saying is this safe will prevent uh, access for long enough for the police to show up, not uh, forever. And uh, and yet computer engineers seem to be trying to design systems that will guarantee that you never need to call the police. I just don't see that. Yeah, actually, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize that at all. I mean, when we look at security, we, we think of it as very holistic, right? There's many, many elements towards improving security. There's certainly technology elements. There's people elements, process elements, law enforcement elements. And you have to think about how to fit those in in an integrated fashion but ultimately, we also have to think about how to make it work in a somewhat safe fashion. And I think the challenge that we're running into is not that we don't believe that 
we want to not help law enforcement. I mean, I've, I've helped personally help law enforcement. I've taken calls from detectives and literally to my office phone and helped them out um, because I believe that we want to make the world safer. I think we have a common goal in mind. I think the challenge becomes that we often aren't able to achieve certain elements of that. And even though, again, it sounds easy to say, but then when you actually work down to the technical details, the process details, the operational details, you incur significant levels of complexity that have to be addressed. I think the conversation would be different if law enforcement themselves showed themselves to be more trustworthy stewards of our, of our public trust. Um, and, I mean, this is true internationally, but it's particularly true in the U.S. You have a legal system in which uh, law enforcement officers can lie and perjure themselves with impunity. They have uh, conventional weapons, they have military weapons, they have uh, chemical weapons, they have black ops torture sites that they take people to. Um, and they're using this, all of the above, particularly against the African-American community in an architecture of oppression. And now we're talking about giving them the ability to eviscerate personal privacy and location data and, and uh, uh, communication data between private individuals, why, why are we considering giving them more hammers with which to beat us? So we do have a democracy, and the democracy has voted for the policies that uh, uh, we are uh, Public opinion out. has no correlation with, with public so, policy. And, and, and your, your argument, it's not unlike the argument that uh, the NRA would put forward, is that we should give everybody guns and then uh, the police forces can't oppress them. Uh, and, uh, you know, we may find ourselves in that world, but I'm not sure saying we'd like to have the policies made by every individual, including every individual criminal, is a better solution than trying to fix what you believe is a failure of our democracy. I, you, I, I think I that's think the, the first time I've ever been compared to the IRA. <laughs> Sorry, the NRA in that way. <laughs> the, the most interesting thing I think I heard on this panel was when you expressed revulsion to uh, the, the Easy Pass system, and I think it was Hong Kong? Yes. Where you talked about, I can't believe that they put an audio recorder in every single one of these cars. And I just sort of think of this as an interesting statement, because what you're saying is, wow, maybe we don't want a society where every possible little bit of information that could be useful to an investigation is obviously being recorded at all times, because at some point, maybe it'll be useful. At some point, maybe we want a society where it's okay for private communications to occur. Maybe you don't go ahead and enforce 100% absolute compliance on penalty of a government being able to re-engineer your product. Maybe there's other ways to live. You know, even going back before the establishment of the United States, there's always been a principle in common law that you cannot force a husband to testify against his wife or vice versa. This goes all the way back, I think, to the Magna Carta. And the whole concept is we would rather let murderers go free than violate that sort of dignity. This is how you build societies. And I feel like in our, in our hunger for every last bit of, in, of, of, following every law enforcement path. 
We're starting to interfere with how do you build a society people actually want to live in. So I, I am, I'm often reminded by uh, people on your side of the debate that uh, George Washington used code, that uh, Jefferson was a crypto- cryptographer, uh, and yet somehow they left it out of the Constitution. Instead, they said if a court uh, decides there's probable cause and issues a warrant, they can search the papers and effects of uh, individuals, and they have no uh, automatic protection. That's the line we drew, and for 225 years, that's the line we have observed. You're making a very radical argument that uh, we ought to change that, uh, and I'm not convinced by uh, events of the last 25 years that that's true. The argument that I'm making, and the argument that I think a lot of people are making, is that there's a tremendous amount of cooperation that is possible in the status quo that does not involve granting final engineering authority to law enforcement agencies. That it is okay to release technology that people can build encryption technology on top of, even if it turns out that they're not able, that you're not able to uh, release the keys, provide extraordinary access, and whatnot. That that is an acceptable thing to do. That there are trade-offs involving. Hey, wait a second. Maybe law enforcement is not. Because keep in mind the amount of information in your cell phone. That's your life. That's your identity. Like that's. Not your papers and effects. As far as the rest of the Internet knows, that's you. That's you to the degree that you're the CEO and you can mail someone and say, provide all the W-2s, and it happens. The amount of risk that is available, that is exposed when this level of access is granted to third parties, even law enforcement third parties, is astonishing. And and the level of risk when you give modern capabilities for instantaneous global communications to terrorists is also an increase in mm-hmm. the risk that we faced uh, 30 years ago. So, uh, But mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's, that, uh, I will ask if there's anybody else who wants to speak, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. One, one thing, we, you know, we talk about whether you can or can't do it or should. We, we haven't asked the question of is it even worth it fundamentally. I mean, we, we've, the, one of the fundamental arguments is that we can access encryption technology pretty easily. Right? It's not like it's hard to find... I can take AES, it's a very good algorithm, been studied for many, many years, probably going to do a good job of encrypting my data. If I really wanted private communication, I, I could do that. So I don't think that, you know, whether you allow exceptional access or not, it is still feasible for people to be able to encrypt their data. And I think we have to always keep that in mind, and it's got to be one of the dimensions along which we evaluate this overall argument of whether or not we should allow exceptional access, whether it's a good idea, whether it makes sense in particular contexts. Kieran, Patrick? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I think that Stu raised a a very good point earlier about um, how in authoritarian countries uh, people are disadvantaged because uh, they can be beaten for their pen to get into their iPhone. And uh, one of the solutions that people come up with when they know they're going in, they're sending troops into a hostile environment where that kind of thing might happen is to give them a coercion pin that gives access to something that doesn't contain the real juicy data but contains something. Um, and I think uh, that is a market pressure then. Uh, if that is the case, there's a market pressure now for uh, Apple and Google and other uh, device manufacturers to build that kind of capability into their systems. And then there won't be this, uh, this sort of disconnect between authoritarian and non-authoritarian countries. 
I guess end with two points. One is that as law enforcement, we'll obviously continue our job of investigating and prosecuting folks using all appropriate lawful means. The second piece is, you know, we hope we're out there educating folks about how this going dark challenge is affecting us. Um, You know, our job in some ways is to tell folks that the tools that the American people through the Congress have given us to protect public safety and national security are not as effective as you think that they are. And so that, we hope, is sort of spurred this discussion. And I think, you know, I want to echo a point that I think was made earlier today, which is that, you know, where we end up is part of the conversation. But I think it's important to have that conversation so we just don't drift to a place by default and that's where we just end up. So we at least make a knowing choice that, you know, whatever the costs and benefits are, that's where we're going to be. And as part of that conversation, I, I do think that it's important to keep in mind what is actually being asked and to avoid some of the hyperbole, some of it that we've heard a little bit on this panel. But, again, uh, we're talking about situations where we've gone to a neutral judge uh, we've satisfied the requirements we have to satisfy, generally probable cause, and we've gotten a court order. And that's a situation that the going dark challenge is really focused on. So I, I, I agree with you. The conversation ought to continue, and I am struck every time I come to this conference by the fact that uh, practically everybody who's in the audience could just as easily be up here delivering uh, uh, remarks at least as thoughtful as mine. I ask that you uh, thank our panel for a terrific presentation. Well, thanks to my panelists uh, here at the Georgetown University 6th Annual International Conference on Cyber Engagement. Uh, And thanks also to Catherine Lotrianti, who uh, agreed that we could use that on the podcast. Uh, I want to also thank uh, Alan Cohn, Maury Schenk, for their participation uh, today in the News Roundup. As always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Please send us your uh, suggestions at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And uh, uh, in addition to asking you to give us a good review on iTunes, I can now ask you to give us a good review on Google Play. So please do that if you get a chance. This has been Episode 113 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, Upcoming episodes include Mike Hayden, former director of the CIA and NSA, uh, and Oren Kerr, everybody's favorite computer crime law guru. Uh, we hope you'll uh, join us for those episodes and others as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>